0: Welcome to this BJSM podcast and it's the first one we're going to do on tendons and I'm with Jill Cook who is known internationally for her work both in pathology imaging and clinical care of tendons so Jill great to have you here today thanks a lot. So what are the big things what's happening in tendon science right now?
1: I think there's a lot of great research that's clinically orientated in terms of treatment outcomes, but I guess our interest is much more into trying to describe for practitioners and clinicians exactly how people end up pathologically um, abnormal in their tendons.
0: And what have you been figuring out?
1: Well, as you know, we published the model in of, of tendon pathology in British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2009. and nine, and. That's really been um, something that we've developed with Craig Purdom over about 15 years through a series of discussions about what we see clinically and trying to put it into some sensible uh, model of tendon pathology. And as it's developed, I think it's turned into something that's really helping us clinically in managing tendinopathies, particularly the more complex presentations.
0: And we might get to that um, through couple cases. So let's talk about someone who comes into the clinic who really increased their load. So they're 18-year-old basketball player, they go to a training camp, they start training four times a day instead of twice a week. Yeah. When you see that patient, how does that fit in with the model that you and Craig have outlined?
1: Okay, so the model as you know it is uh, is a continuum that we've separated into three stages which we've called reactive tendinopathy and I think that's a really good um, term because it suggests that the tendon is responding or reacting to the load. The second stage is disrepair where we think we see the sort of matrix of the tendon start to wear a little we're out a little bit or or be affected by the pathology and then obviously the third stage which we all know from the literature and has been described quite clearly is degenerative where we have vascular changes and really quite severe matrix breakdown. So the reactive tendon is about someone who has had an abusive overload, someone who has a tolerance to a certain amount of load and exceeds that in either one or perhaps two Um, overload so someone who goes from such as basketball you mentioned someone who goes from training a couple of times a week to going into a camp and training three times a a day in an environment where they have to jump a lot or or they're under pressure to perform is very vulnerable to a reactive tendinopathy and particularly the younger athlete we think suffers from this a little bit more frequently
0: and so the diagnosis is mainly on the history or their examination findings as well
1: We think you can get there mostly on the history, um, but the examination will help. Um, As it's been outlined, the history will be... You'll be looking for uh, one episode of abusive overload as i said that's really quite outside the realms of what the tendon is usually capable or usually exposed to so that's always a very good sign again we'd suggest that we see this in a in a younger population more than an older population but that's not absolutely exclusive and we can talk about that a little bit later so and you're looking for really quite intense levels of pain these tend not to be the grumbly tendons these tend to be quite acutely painful so we talk about um, scoring a ten- when we score tendon pain on, on clinical tests or, or examination, uh, of five or six and above out of pain on some of the load-bearing things. So if somebody hops and it's five or six out of ten pain, then that suggests it's much more likely to be reactive. Um, when you're actually looking at the tendon, so the functional tests we've talked about in terms of being much more painful... But we tend to see more sort of homogeneous swelling, so don't tend to see the lumpy and bumpy bits that we see in the more generative ones. We tend to see diffuse swollen tendon rather than, um, you know, areas of, of um, you know, focal swelling. So I think those two things guide you very well. There are occasions where either the history or the examination can't actually tell you the stage, and I think. Uh, then it's worthwhile going for imaging. So ultrasound can really help in that case. And I think for the Achilles, being um, a tendon that we see quite often, sometimes it's hard to differentiate between a peritendinopathy and a reactive tendon because the swelling tends to be um, diffuse through the tendon. So that can be a time that you might use um, imaging as well.
0: Yeah, let's stick with imaging. Um, In that initial scenario, would you image and um, how do you interpret it?
1: You don't always have to image. As I say, I think you can get a very good perspective from the um, uh, examination and the history. And often for reactive tendons, if that's you know what we're talking about at the moment, you can actually get um, a very good idea because they often settle with just unloading. So sometimes you don't have to rush into imaging um, immediately if you if you give them a bit of a, an unloading period for seven to ten days and they're a lot better you can assume that it's probably been a reactive tendon so you can afford to wait you don't have to image it right at the at the first presentation if after 10 days it's not settled then that might be a, a really good indication to to image what you see or what what we propose you see in a reactive tendon is Uh, again that diffuse sort of uh, thickening of the tendon so it tends to be sort of the borders aren't parallel they tend to be um, concave both sides but we see quite intact on ultrasound quite intact collagen so there's no really obvious areas where that are what we call hypoechogenic where the matrix is really broken down so diffuse swelling really intact collagen Um, No vascularity, Uh, I think it's a pretty classic sort of presentation.
0: Okay, and let's stick with that one and go to treatment Mm -hmm. straight away and then we'll Mm -hmm. go to the other one. So um, treatment of this scenario.
1: By far the most important thing is to allow the tendon just to uh, settle back down. So with most tendon presentations, what happens is we tend to want to get in and exercise them very Intensely and obviously use eccentric exercises. That's one of the sort of key evidence based treatments for tendons. But for these tendons, putting more load on them at this point in time is often not beneficial. And these are the tendons that will get better when you do nothing. We've always wondered why. Um, people who have very poor treatment for tendons do very well when they've been painful and I think this really helps explain it is if you do nothing with these tendons they'll actually get better so what you want to do is relatively unload them so take away the abusive load and we know that energy storage and release is the abusive load for tendons so you want to be not doing any fast or energy storage type work um, and give them time to settle down What we're also finding with these tendons is they kind of like slow heavy load. So we can actually still do some exercise-based therapies, but we wouldn't necessarily do the eccentric exercise at this stage. Uh, Similarly, you can we propose that you can get some very good results with some medications directed at calming down the tendon, so calming down the tendon cells. Uh, limiting the protein expression from the cells that will separate the collagen, which we think is what's happening when we see the picture on imaging.
0: So what are those medications you refer to, Jill?
1: We've proposed that there are a series of medications that you can use. The most important one is ibuprofen, which is traditionally used as an anti-inflammatory and a pain reliever, but we're proposing it's actually a a disease-modifying agent and it has its effect by inhibiting um, cell proliferation and by inhibiting the expression of proteins from the cell and particularly agri which is a large proteoglycan that pulls water into the tendon and we think it's these proteoglycans that are separating the collagen and that's what we see on imaging. So ibuprofen can be very important um, in the early stages in reactive tendinopathy to really settling down the process of pathology. We also propose that there are uh, medications that work on TNF-alpha. We think that TNF-alpha is a very important cytokine in early stages in reactive tendinopathy. And doxycycline, which is an antibiotic, actually is a very potent TNF-alpha inhibitor. The other thing that we think works quite well is uh, the EGCG in green tea which also has similar effects and there's quite a bit of research to suggest that's potent anti-inflammatory but it also has its effect on uh, inhibiting TNF alpha as well and if you really want to toss in the fourth omega-3s appear to have the same a similar effect so putting people on these medications in an acute reactive tendon can settle the tendon down within seven to 20 odd days and uh, you can see the swelling decrease the pain obviously is is decreased as, as well and these people can do quite well
0: so if we move on to the grumbly ones 45 uh, year old does a lot of running has had achilles problems in the mornings stiffness from time to time but then has a flare-up and comes in to see you saying you know my Achilles is getting worse i'm worried about it where does that sit in the pathology um, spectrum uh, Yeah, and management
1: yeah there's a lot of people out there with what we would propose a degenerative tendons and you know the research has showed that if you image a cross-section of the population a lot of them have tendon pathology that's either asymptomatic or they might have had symptoms in the past or they're a group that just grumble along with minor symptoms every you know every couple of days so these are the people that really manage their tendinopathy within the bounds of their their load what we see Present clinically is these people that have had a history of grumbly tendinopathy and they've done something that's um, flared it up and uh, we propose that these are not just purely degenerative tendons because we're thinking that degenerative tendons actually aren't that painful you can actually um, get by without uh, much pain with those that these people who are presenting after a period of abusive load actually have what we would think is a reactive tendon on top of the degenerative tendon. Now, what we're thinking is that the normal part of the tendon that's bearing most of the load because the degenerative part is not able to take tensile load is actually overloaded with a minimal or, or moderate increase in load. And these people actually have a reactive tendon in the normal part of the tendon on top of their degenerative sort of part of the tendon as well. So these are the people that you would um, treat as a reactive tendon and they settle relatively quickly because it's usually a relatively small part of the tendon that's reactive. They tend to settle within 7 or 10 days. So you might just unload them. You might use the medications. You might use the slow heavy load that we suggested is, is good at um, with reactive tendons. Once you've settled their reaction then you need to actually act on the degenerative part of the tendon, which is much more about exercise-based therapies, eccentric exercise. Um, If they're not settling or not load-tolerant, then you might think about some of the injectable um, therapies that have been proposed as well. So that's really a two-stage treatment. Settle them down first and get them out of that reactive stage and then actually act on their degenerative tendinopathy. So it's a little bit more complex.
0: Okay, so we've talked about those two ends of the spectrum, but in the continuum paper and the model, you highlight a disrepair phase that's in between those, right?
1: Yes, that's right. What we've done with the model is sort of illustrate that there's a process from normal tender to degenerative. But clinically, um, we've separated in two just for ease of use of the model. Now, disrepair is a stage that's just a little harder to recognise clinically Um, and that's one of the reasons why we've sort of split it into two. On imaging, I think you can see it. These would be the people that, or the tendons, that had very early stages of uh, matrix breakdown, so not big hypoechoic areas, but some discontinuity of the collagen. And I think, and I don't know this for a fact, but I would propose that uh, vascularity is a very good marker of uh, matrix breakdown, so that if you have a tendon that has quite a lot of vascularity uh, then it's on the second stage so it's in a disrepair or degenerative stage Um, whereas a tendon that doesn't have any vascularity might be considered to be in the reactive or early disrepair so that's often a a good sort of tide mark of deciding whether the matrix is relatively intact or really starting to uh, become problematic in its capacity to actually repair and that's supported by um, some work by Donald Ingber and uh, Michael Benjamin who suggest that the vascularity or vessels can bud into holes. So as the matrix disintegrates, there's a stimulus or a mechanical stimulus for the, the vessels to actually um, enter into an area that doesn't have you know, a quite solid matrix. So that's a, a an interesting progression of the model as we published it.
0: So, Jill, in terms of treatment... Um, a lot of people think that eccentric uh, exercise is sort of the panacea. Other people think there's rest is the panacea but let's focus on eccentric exercise. Is it a recipe? do you just do the Alfredson thing in all parts of the body for all tendons? You know How does a clinician manage um, eccentric treatment in a patient?
1: Yeah I think you know it's very hard to be specific, but I think the model helps us a little bit. Clearly, if it was a reactive tendon, we wouldn't want to be uh, using eccentric exercise in the early stages. It might be something that we would add once the, tel- the tendon had settled down. I think in a disrepair state, eccentric exercise might be a very good stimulus. Uh, in a degenerative stage, which is what the where the evidence lies for eccentric exercise, I think that exercise is um, a very potent stimulus to... Uh, helping the matrix uh, recover as best it can, repair in inverted commas, I guess. Uh, So exercise is a great stimulus. I, I guess the caveat that I would put on it, and I think Sylvan Argel has sort of done this in some of her research, is that we can't be absolutely focused just on the muscle tendon unit that's affected. Often what we see with degenerative tendinopathies is quite a lot of loss of um, kinetic chain function. So not only do they lose strength and power in the muscle of the muscle tendon unit that's affected, the whole kinetic chain is actually affected. So I guess I'm a bit of an advocate for um, a slightly more holistic approach to treating tendons, particularly the degenerative ones, and not just having a recipe-based, eccentric exercise-based approach. But that's probably outside of... um, you know, the model, that's probably more a clinical perspective.
0: And Jill, you've begun functional tests when you're assessing patients. Um, Tell us about your favourite ones that you think clinicians could use in, in their practice when they're evaluating where a tendon's at.
1: Yeah. What you want to do to really load up a tendon is to put the energy storage and release loads on it, but you perhaps want to sort of have a staging process so the achilles is the easiest one to to illustrate clearly just lifting and lowering body weight is a simple way to see that the tendon is intact and able to tolerate load but it's really hopping that puts the maximum or close to maximum energy storage and release um, loads on the tendon so being careful with how you and who you place on or or, um, assess with hopping that that's by far the best um, exercise or or assessment for an Achilles. For a patella tendon, again, jumping is obviously um, relatively high load, so that, again, is a very good assessment. So it's about putting energy storage and release loads on the tendon, as well as actually assessing the function of the limb. So this is where the kinetic chain function comes in. It's it's a very good way of both loading the tendon and actually assessing the capacity of the limb to tolerate relatively high functional loads. Upper limb? Look, I, I'm pretty uh, happy that the, the model of pathology is right for the upper limb and I think that certainly for the elbow tendons a lot of what we suggest is actually very uh, applicable and function and strength strength of the muscular tendons uh, unit as well as function and kinetic chain function of the upper limb is very important the rotator cuff is a, a, a bit of a beast by itself it has a lot of other factors and a lot of other sort of morphological differences that make it a little more Difficult to um, to treat in the same way, and I think there are a lot of experts out there in rotator cuff tendinopathy. who would be better to ask.
0: Okay. Now, you do a lot of uh, lectures and talks. So, what are a couple of key messages that you feel people benefit from when you expose to these courses and talking to a lot of physios and doctors?
1: Well, I think you can't treat a condition until you understand the pathology, and I think that what I lecture on a lot is understanding tendons and understanding tendon pathology and understanding how slow they are to respond that you can't be expecting a tendon to respond positively or negatively necessarily to um, an intervention in a very short period of time I find it interesting that We're quite happy to give both muscles and bones weeks and sometimes months to recover but we have this expectation that tendons will recover within days or weeks and I haven't quite worked out why that's the case but uh, tendons do take a long time to respond to an intervention and that's because of the structure of them and the pathology. So I think that's a really, really important sort of cornerstone of understanding your treatments. And I guess the second thing that I tend to emphasise is to be much more holistic in how you view uh, the tendon injury, that you can't just focus on the tendon itself. You have to look at the strength and capacity of the muscle tendon unit that we talked about in the kinetic chain. And I think once you do that, you are well-equipped to treat pretty much any tendon that comes along.
0: Insertional tendinopathies?
1: (laughs) Well, they mostly are. Insertional tendinopathies are tendinopathies Really, the only tendon that breaks down in the mid tendon is the Achilles. So, every other tendonopathy, we're talking about a bone tendon junction pathology, and uh, we're doing some work at the moment looking at the role of compression, um, sort of from the bony fulcrum that most tendons abut just before they insert. So, a lot of the pathology is the same as what we've been talking about, and the same as what's in the model, but. There might be other loading environments such as compression that are really critical for these anthaceal tendons. So we are looking at uh, treating these reactive tendons, reactive insertional tendons, uh, in an uncompressed uh, situation in early rehab, which is another adjunct that we've added that's really helping us actually progress people um, from being painful through into function.
0: And which tendons are you talking about specifically?
1: Uh, insertional Achilles, I think, is one that's uh, very much compressed. The hamstring tendon is very much about uh, compression from the ischial tuberosity, particularly when you flex the body on the leg. Um, adductor tendonopathy is another one. The patella tendon is a little bit more problematic in that it's not obviously got a compressed uh, region, whereas the quadriceps tendon clearly does. So the ones where we can truly see and understand that the bone prior to attachment is affecting the tendon, they're the ones that we're, we're intervening. And Per Jonsson has done a, a great uh, paper on using the eccentric programs in insertion Achilles, but not actually dropping them into full dorsiflexion. So just going to flat, that's there to prevent too much compression on the uh, insertion, just uh, as you go into full dorsiflexion, that's been shown to actually have um, very benef- beneficial effects on the insertion. So that's taking another step, that's um, looking at pathology, uh, applying exercise, but actually limiting the compressive loads as well. So it's, it gets a little bit more complex as you go into it.
0: Now, what's the role of injections in uh, tendinopathies? Mm-hmm.
1: I think there's there's a role for injections in tendon injuries, but what I would propose is that you have to be very selective. What I think at the moment is happening is that people with tendon pain are being offered and given injections. Now, if we're proposing that it's the reactive part of tendinopathy that's the most painful, then that's a that's a type of tendinopathy or a stage of tendinopathy that is really quite angry already, and injecting injecting something into that tendon actually can often make it worse and what we see there's the classic JAMA paper and I think there's a paper coming out in BJSM uh, about the ultrasound imaging is these people actually get worse for a period of time uh, after injection but if you choose a degenerative tendon that uh, constantly fails to tolerate load that you need it to tolerate then these injections can actually stimulate a really nice repair in inverted commas, a scarring recovery, I suppose, that can be very beneficial to the tendon in the long term. So if you choose the tendon and you choose the person and you choose the stage, injections can be very, very good. But what I think it ha- is happening at the moment is people are tending to use it as a default and using it too much in uh, inappropriate situations.
0: And you about cortisone specifically or PRP?
1: Uh, For that, talking about those that are meant to repair, in inverted commas, the tendon. So the prolotherapies, the um, the PRP, the autologous blood, all the things that irritate the tendon. So in a generative tendon where there's not much activity, we would propose that this is a relatively um, exhausted or passive stage of tendinopathy. Something that stimulates the tendon can be quite beneficial. Corticosteroids at that stage is clearly not indicated.
0: Now, the issue of where does the pain come from in tendopathies has been debated, and um, managing pain is a challenge for clinicians. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: There's some great work out of the Umeo group, um, Patrick Danielson in particular, and it's been uh, supported by some work from some other people that suggest that it's the affected or activated cells that create manufacture substances that are potentially nociceptive now this is really exciting for us because if reactive tendonopathy is about activation of the cells and that's the primary driver behind the pathological process it suggests that this cell activation can also be the source of pain and i think we see this clearly in acutely reactive tendons where they can be exquisitely painful uh, that that it might be the cells that are driving it we need more work obviously clearly we need more research on the model to show that in fact that there that is is what is happening in tendons but also a little bit more work on um, working out whether these substances are capable of producing the pain that we see it makes sense in the model in that we're thinking that reactive tendons are more painful, the degenerative tendons are grumbly but not acutely painful unless you acutely overload them and get a reactive tendinopathy. So that's really helpful for us um, but obviously we need a little bit more research to be sure that that's exactly what's happening.
0: So Jill, we've talked quite a bit about eccentric loading and and stimulating tendon repair but there are a lot of people who do rest tendons um, and I think you probably agree that the majority of general practice there might be real emphasis on resting um, tendons. Mm-hmm. So you've written that um, you know load can be both anabolic and catabolic, mm. and uh, do you want to just expand on that?
1: Yeah. Within an early or reactive tendinopathy, a relative rest can be very appropriate. Now, relative rest is about taking off the very high loads, so the energy storage and release we've talked about. There is a lot of evidence that complete rest for tendons is actually catabolic. Um, these stress shielding models is if you take complete load off a tendon, you actually enter a pathological state that's actually not dissimilar to an overuse tendinopathy. So there is quite a lot of evidence to, to suggest that complete rest is, is not indicated. Um, from a rehabilitation perspective, it's, it's logical if we're interested in function and kinetic chain function and capacity within the muscle and strength within, strength and power within the muscle that resting is working completely against all of those things. So um, I would advocate very strongly that complete rest is not appropriate, but again, it comes back to understanding what loads a tendon and how a tendon responds to really get exercise prescription right so pushing loads onto a tendon that are appropriate is very beneficial but you've just got to be careful that you're not pushing loads onto it that it can't tolerate because that's what will continually trigger sort of the the pathological process so it's a bit of an art unfortunately and I think for people that don't see a lot of tendons or don't have um, a lot of knowledge in tendons. It can be very difficult to do, and it, it's experience and 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 thinking constructively about what you're trying to achieve that can actually help you get the right exercise prescription for tendons.
0: So I think that's a good place uh, to leave it. Um, other than to help our readers find the paper, and it's called "Is Tendon Pathology Continuum." A pathology model to explain a clinical presentation of load-induced tendinopathy and that's with you and Craig Purdom and that was in the BJCM in 2009. Now just tell us a little bit about the work um, you'll, you'll tell the listeners a little bit about how you and Craig have collaborated over the years to understand these tendon problems better and your thinking in, into this model.
1: Yeah, Craig and I, Craig's obviously very important in the development of this model. Um, He works at the Australian Institute of Sport and I work in a private practice. So the model developed when he was seeing young athletes with acute tendon pain and I was seeing grumbly old generative tendons and we'd keep saying, well, I think you're wrong and... um, over a period of 10 or 15 years, many phone calls and, and many red wines, we actually came to understand that we weren't seeing different things. We were actually seeing the same thing at different stages. And And I was very fortunate to go up to the AIS for six weeks under, under a club warehouse um, sponsorship. And we sat down, we were able to sit down and actually coherently put our thoughts on paper. And that's where the model developed in from. So... Prague's Perdom is obviously an essential and critical part of the development of this model.
0: Yeah, it's been a major force behind Australian physiotherapy and global treatment efforts and uh, part of the Australian sports success story. But uh, thanks for that, Jill, and uh, we'll leave it there for today. Great talking to you and um, look forward to speaking to you soon.
1: Thank you.